For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Tango Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two, main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm Jake Robbins. This week, we're getting ready to celebrate an upcoming mission milestone. In September, NASA's MAVEN mission will celebrate five years in orbit around Mars. MAVEN is a mission we regrettably haven't spent enough time on. It's one of those missions that doesn't have a camera on it and therefore has a much harder time connecting with the public, and I'm totally guilty of falling for that. But don't be fooled. This spacecraft is doing a lot of cool things, from creating models of the solar wind and its interaction with the magnetosphere to the incredible deep dive maneuvers orbiting right into the atmosphere of Mars, MAVEN is certainly pulling its weight. Now, to do a long overdue recap of this mission, I reached out to the mission's project scientist, Gina DiBraccio, at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. She was kind enough to spend an hour with me and get me up to speed on what this mission has been up to all of these years. Okay, so we're here with Gina DiBraccio from NASA Goddard. How are you doing today, Gina? Great. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you on. So I've, I've had this show for three, three and a half years now, and uh, I haven't done a single episode on anything to do with Maven. It feels like a complete oversight, and I'm really happy to be correcting it today. Um, now, before we dig into that, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, you know, what's your background, your education, and how the heck did you get into Mars and, and the Maven project? Sure, absolutely. So Let's see. Um, my education, I went to the University of Pittsburgh. I received a bachelor's of science in physics and astronomy. And while I was there, they actually had a program that I could get a business administration degree as well. So I double majored. I have my business degree along with my science degree. And I found that to be really useful as I go into some of the science and mission leadership areas. From there, I went to the University of Michigan, where I got my master's and my PhD, and that is in atmospheric and space sciences. Um, during my time throughout undergrad um, and into grad school, I decided to get some science experience as well. So I became an intern at the NASA Glenn Research Center, which is in Cleveland, uh, working there for a summer, and that internship turned into a co-op. So during my co-op, I was actually expected to alternate between working, getting real-life experience at a NASA center, and then returning to school um, every other semester to get my education as well. And this worked out perfectly for me um, because as I was learning through my experience at NASA Glenn, I realized um, working on uh, es essentially engines and power for deep space missions, I realized that this was really interesting, but I wanted to get more into the science analysis. So I connected with a few people at NASA Goddard during this time. And after talking to them, uh, they agreed to take me on as a co-op student at NASA Goddard outside of Washington, D.C. in Greenbelt, Maryland. So I transferred over there and I started working within the heliophysics division, um, starting with 
planetary magnetic fields, working on all different planets, and doing this research along with my grad school research. So once I finished my PhD, I was hired again at NASA Goddard through the NASA postdoctoral program. So I became a postdoctoral fellow there. And this is when my career really started to take off as far as Mars is concerned. Up until this point, a lot of my research actually had been um, on the planet Mercury because the, the mission Messenger was there at the time. And so I transitioned from knowing a lot of stuff about Mercury to suddenly wanting to apply the skills that I learned to Mars instead, um, which was great. And there's a steep learning curve jumping from planet to planet. But this is where I started to kind of engage with, with the Mars community, um, being hired to work on the MAVEN mission directly. So I joined my group at Goddard, which is the Planetary Magnetospheres Lab. And specifically within that laboratory, I am in the magnetometer group. So they build magnetometer instruments for space missions. And there we build the instruments, we process and calibrate the data, and then we do the science analysis to go along with it. So we have the ability to see the entire process through, which is really great. And so that's where I am now. I'm still there. Um, from my postdoc position, I continued on, and uh, eventually they hired me as a civil servant. So now I'm a federal employee working at NASA within this group that I started in right after my PhD. You know, every time I hear a story that starts with one of those uh, the NASA internships and co-ops, they always end up really well. It seems like that's a pretty good program to funnel in talent. Yeah, it, it really is. And so the, the co-op can go one of two ways. It can lead directly into um, a, a civil servant position, but I actually took a different route. I decided to um, be a co-op for a little while and then spend some time at the University of Michigan with my PhD and then find a new pathway to come back to Goddard. And that was through the NASA postdoctoral program, which they call the NPP. So there are several ways to kind of get into this track at, at NASA, the, the co-op program being one, I believe they call it the pathways program now, but it was the co-op program when I went through it. Um, but the, the NASA postdoctoral fellowship is another great way as well. And your position right now is, is a project scientist. Can you maybe describe what that means? Sure. So uh, I am the project scientist of the MAVEN mission. So MAVEN is a PI-led mission. There's a principal investigator of the mission who was the lead on the proposal. He is in charge of the mission, the operations, the science. And essentially, I am one of his lead science supporters. Um, the original MAVEN project scientist was Joe Grabowski. And he was there through the, the concept of the mission, the proposal, the selection, all up until um, around 2017 when he decided it was time for him to retire. So um, now I have been the project scientist for a little over two years at this point. And gratefully, I was able to learn from Joe before he retired. Um, but what this means is that I'm supporting the science that Maven is doing. Um, I'm hosting weekly science telecons among the team so that we can communicate about the science that we're doing. Um, I am taking some of our biggest science results that we have and packing, packaging them into presentations that we send up to NASA headquarters so that they're aware of some of our most compelling science results. Um, and I support the PI, the, the mission principal investigator, in anything that he needs to make the mission a success. 
I can definitely see where that business degree comes into play then. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I was getting that business degree, a lot of people would ask me, you know, if you want to be a scientist, why, why are you interested in business? And it, it has helped me uh, through the managerial path a little bit. That's the, uh, the little known secret of, uh, well, not little known, but often overlooked secret of, of business degrees is that everything's a business when you get down to it. So. <laughs> exactly. Yep. <laughs> and it's just really interesting to, to understand how people operate as well. Yeah, totally. All right. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Maven. So um, timing on this is, is not coincidence. Uh, coming up at the end of this summer is kind of a five-year milestone for Maven. So that's very exciting. Um, for people who have never heard of it, what is the Maven mission and, and you know why are we flying it? Great. So the MAVEN mission, it stands for Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution Mission. MAVEN is essentially trying to understand how the Martian climate has changed over the course of its 4 billion year history. So Mars used to be a planet that had water and it was warm and wet. And through the 4 billion year history of Mars, it has evolved into the Mars that we know today, which is a dry planet, that's cold relative to uh, what we know from the past. So with MAVEN, the main mission objectives that we're looking to understand is essentially why has this climate changed over time and how has it changed over time? So in order to do that, we have three objectives that we are trying to look at through the lifetime of the mission. And the first one is essentially to understand the current state of the upper atmosphere of Mars. So how is the atmosphere characterized today? and what processes control how the atmosphere um, reacts and changes over time. So then we're also looking at how is it escaping? How is the atmosphere escaping? Um, so the, the main draw here is we believe that the atmosphere has escaped to space over time. So when you have water in the atmosphere, the water can either go down into the surface, and that would be something that the rovers on Mars, for instance, could study, but it can also go out to space. And so there's the down of the water or going up when you're talking about water in the atmosphere. And so MAVEN, being a satellite that's orbiting Mars, we can measure everything that's going up, that's going out into space. So what we want to understand not only is the current state of the upper atmosphere, but also what is that escape rate to space presently? And how does that relate to the processes that are controlling the upper atmosphere? And then finally, once we really understand what's going on with Mars today in terms of the upper atmosphere and how much of it is escaping to space, the third objective that we have for the mission is what has this total loss to space been over time? So now we're not just talking about today, but we're talking about over the entire four billion year history of Mars. How has this loss to space affected the planet and how has it changed? Because if you're thinking um, back in time, you know, the sun was very different. Mars was very different. And so we have to take all these factors into account in order to try to truly understand the history of the Martian atmosphere and Martian climate change. And so how does MAVEN do that? Like what kind of science payload are we looking at on this spacecraft? So we have a suite of instruments that allow us to not only measure the upper atmosphere directly, but we also want to measure the inputs coming from the sun because we believe that the sun has a great deal of change uh, that it affects the Martian atmosphere. So we have 
in situ measurements, in situ instruments, which means they're measuring exactly where the spacecraft is. And then we have remote sensing where we're able to look uh, towards the planet and sense what's going on in the atmosphere. So as far as our instruments go, we have nine different instruments um, to measure all of these characteristics of the solar input to Mars and the Martian atmosphere. Um, so first I'll talk about the magnetometers because that is the instrument that I started working with um, by being a part of the magnetometer team. Uh, the magnetometers measure the magnetic fields that are in the local space environment. And so Mars has magnetic fields, the sun has a magnetic field, and understanding the magnetic fields will help us to understand what the particles are doing, uh, particles coming from the sun and at Mars as well. So directly related to the magnetometers, we have a slew of instruments that measure these particles. We have what we call the SWEA instrument, solar wind electron analyzer that measures electrons coming from the solar wind. We have the SWIA instrument, solar wind ion analyzer, measuring the ions that are coming from the solar wind. We have the solar energetic particle detectors, which measure particles coming from the sun that have extremely high energies. Um, and these type of particles would cause potentially harmful radiation to astronauts on the surface, let's say. Um, additionally, we have the EUV extreme ultraviolet monitor, which helps us to determine the EUV inputs coming from the sun. As far as uh, the planet is concerned, we have our static instrument. That's the suprathermal and thermal ion composition instrument. And static is really important because it's measuring ions at lower energies, but it also can tell us which ions we're measuring. So it'll tell us if we're looking at hydrogen ions, oxygen ions, um, and all of the different ions, nitrogen, that are available at Mars, for instance. We have the Langmuir Probe and Waves Instrument, LPW is what we call it, um, and this gives us electron temperature and number density throughout the upper atmosphere, but it also gives us electric field wave power, um, which is important for determining different mechanisms of ion heating. And then finally, to study the atmosphere even more, we have the NGIMS instrument, Neutral Gas and Ion Mass Spectrometer. And this mass spectrometer is really important for understanding the upper atmosphere because it not only tells us what some of the ions are doing, but it's telling us what the neutrals are doing in the atmosphere. And then last but not least, we have the IUVS, that's our Imaging Ultraviolet Spectrometer. And the IUVS instrument is our remote sensing instrument, which is able to take a look at the atmosphere, even when MAVEN is not necessarily near it, to take scans and really understand what's going on. And we have some beautiful pictures that come out, not, in, not invisible, but in UV. And from this, we've been able to observe aurora and different uh, physical features of the Martian atmosphere. So with this suite of instruments, we can do the complete science that's necessary uh, to reach the MAVEN objectives. So you can really tell by that payload how much of a physics mission this is, as opposed to some of the other stuff that, um, you know, a lot of the other Mars missions are often very geology focused, but this is uh, pretty different in that respect. Exactly. This is more of an upper atmosphere and space mission. And exactly, the payload is constructed very differently to achieve those objectives. 
Now you mentioned uh, the in situ measurement, and I kind of want to dig into that a bit because that's probably one of the like the most like heavy metal parts of of Maven is how it measures the upper atmosphere. Can you talk about sort of these dive bomb maneuvers it does? Sure. Uh, during our orbit, we so Maven's orbit is highly elliptical, and wherever we are is where we're going to measure, which means if we want to know what the sun is doing, we need to be measuring the solar wind plasma that's streaming off the sun. If we want to measure the upper atmosphere of Mars, we need to be in the upper atmosphere to do that for the in-situ um, instruments that we have. So when we're in the atmosphere, the lowest point that we reach is called the periapsis. And our periapsis is around 150 kilometers in altitude. but during this elliptical orbit, we also reach our farthest point, which is called the apoapsis, which is usually around 6,000 kilometers. Uh, we just recently changed our orbit, so it's now at 4,500 kilometers. But during the periapsis, the closest point of the orbit, we can measure what's going on in the upper atmosphere. And this is important so that we can characterize what the upper atmosphere is doing. Throughout the MAVEN mission, we've also done what we've called deep dip campaigns. So we've taken the orbit and we've lowered it even lower so that we can understand different atmospheric processes that are going on. And we've lowered it all the way down to 125 kilometers. And although it's only a 25 kilometer difference, if you understand the different regions of the atmosphere, this is important because we're reaching a whole different region where we see new physics going on. And so what we've done is a series of these deep dips where we lower the periapsis, sample a deeper region of the upper atmosphere and understand even more physics about what's going on there. Wow. Yeah. And, and I think 125 kilometers, even it sounds pretty high. I mean, we often think about space on earth being a hundred kilometers, but I, I know on Mars, the atmosphere sort of extends out a little further because of the lower gravity. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So, um, part of, part of the atmosphere of Mars, the neutral part, there's a hydrogen corona, and it's neutral hydrogen that is not charged, it's neutral, um, but it extends really far out. And this is important because essentially there are neutral particles from Mars that are able to interact with the sun, um, not being shielded within the magnetosphere of Mars, which is the area that I research. So Mars does extend uh, due to that. And so based on the different altitudes that you're measuring, you'll see different physics going on. And that's why we want to sample that whole different range of altitudes there. That's so cool. So um, we mentioned five years. Uh, the primary mission was only was one or two years, I think. So you're in a, in a second or third extended mission. Is that right? Yes, we're actually in the third extended mission now. Um, our primary mission was one year long. And then we went into our first extended mission that was also one year long. Our second extended mission was two. And we're about to finish our third extended mission uh, at the end of September. And that will be one year long. And so recently, we just proposed for our fourth extended mission. And if we're successful in this proposal, this fourth extended mission will be for three years. Wow. Okay. Well, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, so um, I'd like to talk a little more about the the actual science. Um, and this is, you know, I'm way out of my wheelhouse here. I'm not any kind of scientist, but if if I was, I, I would be very geology focused. So um, so bear with me here as I try and figure this stuff <laughs> out. Um, but maybe we could start. You mentioned um, sort of the magnetic fields and stuff. What on earth is a magnetosphere or magnetosphere? I don't even know how to say it. This is how how out to lunch I am. No, great. Yeah, maybe I can uh, convert you to be a <laughs> magnetospheric physicist. Yeah. So magnetosphere, uh, most planets throughout our solar system have what we call a magnetosphere, which is a, essentially a magnetic cavity around the planet that is the, the region of space that's influencing the planet itself. So if you talk about Earth, for instance, the planet Earth has its own intrinsic magnetic field. And this magnetic field, if you were to think of um, a kitchen refrigerator magnet, it's a bar magnet. And so you see this dipolar field. That's what the Earth's magnetic field looks like. But then when you have the solar wind plasma streaming off the sun interacting with this dipole magnetic field, you get what's called the magnetosphere. It's going to change the structure of it. It's going to actually drag one end out really far past the planet. And it creates this magnetic tail that's leading out into space away from the sun. And so that's the structure that we call an intrinsic mag magnetosphere. And it's a lot easier when I can draw. And I wish you could see my hands waving right <laughs> now as I'm trying to depict this. Um, because, you know, right now, use your imagination. But this is, this is what um, the Earth's magnetosphere looks like. And so everything within the magnetosphere is essentially influenced by the Earth's magnetic field and plasma coming from uh, the Earth's atmosphere that's been charged and whatnot, and everything outside of it will be of the influence of the sun. So the sun has solar wind plasma, the sun also has its own magnetic field, and this will directly interact with the Earth's magnetic field. So you have planets like Mercury and Jupiter and Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, they all have intrinsic magnetic fields and create magnetospheric cavities, cavities like I just described. But then you have planets like Venus and Mars, and they have what we call induced magnetospheres. And that's because they don't actually have their own magnetic field, a global magnetic field. Instead, their magnetosphere is created or induced by the fact that magnetic fields from the sun will interact with the planet and create this cavity itself. But Mars is a very special case because although it doesn't have a global field currently, we believe it did uh, at some point in the Martian history. And what, what is left now are what we called remnant crustal fields. And these are actually pockets of magnetic field that are rooted into the surface of Mars that are essentially fossils of the magnetic field that used to be present and generated within uh, Mars itself. And this creates a really interesting and challenging scenario as far as magnetospheric physics is concerned because these pockets of crustal fields, you can almost think of bubbles across the surface, they're going to actually rotate with the planet. So as the planet rotates and these magnetic fields rotate with it, that means the obstacle that's pointing towards the sun is always going to change. So at a planet like Earth, it's pretty constant. We know what the, what the Earth's magnetic field orientation and direction is, but at Mars, 
it's always changing. And so this is going to pose an even bigger question and problem when we're considering the physics of MAVEN and how the atmosphere is escaping because it's constantly changing with the rotation of the planet. I remember in the, the first time I kind of looked this information up, you know, and I think everyone's sort of seen that sort of diagram of Earth like you're trying to describe where these these lines, you know, shooting out of the bottom of the planet, these magnetic lines going all the way around the top and back into the North Pole. It's this kind of beautiful classic mm -hmm. magnet shape and then you I, I remember pulling up the one about mars and it's kind of like you said it's like it's a disaster there's just like little chunks of it lying all over place yeah. and there's, there's no like pattern or coherence to it and but i hadn't put together the fact that you said that it, it'll it'll rotate with the planet and so the profile of of the magnetosphere i guess would be constantly changing much less than earth exactly and if you if you want to take it one step further it's even more complicated because of the martian seasons so as we have seasons at Earth, there are seasons at Mars, and at some time of the Martian year, these crustal fields are jutted out into the solar wind even more, and then in other times, they're slewed back and hiding a little bit as well. So so what were our, our main questions kind of going into the MAVEN mission about, you know, the magnetosphere that, that we have been trying to answer through this mission? So... Essentially, as we're learning about atmospheric escape um, and the factors that control it, we, we want to understand to what degree do these crustal magnetic fields either hinder or accelerate uh, the escape to space. And so not only the crustal magnetic fields, but the magnetic tail that's extending behind Mars, which is um, a compilation of the sun, solar wind that's interacting with the planet and also these crustal fields. So what we're trying to look at is, do these crustal fields accelerate or help the, the atmosphere to escape to space? Um, what are they doing as far as the physics of the particles? So like I said, these crustal fields will reach down to the surface, which means that any of the ionized particles throughout the atmosphere can directly interact with them and it can change the trajectories of the particles itself. Um, one other thing that we really don't understand yet with Mars is how, when the, when the sun, when there's solar events on the sun and changes on the sun that will propagate, propagate through and interact with Mars, how fast will the magnetic fields change and respond to this? Um, and that's something that we're actively pursuing because that will determine how much the entire system is affected as well. And so there's a great deal of information that we can learn using the MAVEN instruments in order to determine um, how the Mars magnetosphere is responding to changes in the solar wind and helping us to understand that atmospheric escape. Can you talk a little more about sort of that interaction between the solar wind and the atmosphere and how the magnetosphere affects it? Like uh, maybe even just a, a quick refresher on what the solar wind even is, because that's sort of a pretty unintuitive concept. Sure. So the solar wind is a plasma with ions and electrons. It's charged and it's constantly streaming from the sun. So you can, we almost treat it as a fluid when we're, when we're modeling it. So just picture a fluid of particles coming out from the sun and it's going to directly impact with the magnetic fields and the atmosphere of Mars. As the solar wind travels through the interplanetary space, it's also dragging with it the magnetic field of the sun. So suddenly you have ions, electrons, and magnetic fields that are just streaming off the sun 
at very high speeds and directly interacting with the planet. And one thing that I should note is that this solar wind plasma is traveling supersonically. So you're actually going to have a shock wave that forms in front of the planet. We call this a bow shock. And if you've seen uh, really fast jets or pictures of jets going through the Earth's atmosphere, if they're traveling faster than the speed of sound, supersonic, then you'll see this shock form in front of them, which essentially tells the particles to get out of the way because this fast object is coming through. And that happens in space too. So these particles will first interact with the bow shock that's formed and the shock will immediately slow them down and heat them up. And so what happens is you have this shocked solar wind that will directly interact with the planet and a couple of things can happen. Uh, the magnetic fields can either penetrate with the, with the particles into the atmosphere of Mars, or if given enough time, they might actually be able to pass by and just continue on their way. And so there are different regions of the magnetosphere that we can observe through our data that have different characteristics. So we can see that bow shock looking at the magnetic field data. There are signatures that we can pick out and we can see when we're observing that shocked solar wind that I was talking about. And finally, in, in the magnetic tail region, we can see that this magnetic field from the sun has essentially come up and run up against Mars and then is stretched around the planet. And so using our observations, we're able to monitor all of these different regions of the magnetosphere and determine their characteristics as well. And that kind of leads me to be able to talk about what is maybe the crown jewel of, of Maven's science communication and public engagement is that amazing uh, animation that's out there of, of all the particles blasting against the planet and flowing around it. Yes, that is one of the, that's one of the best ways to understand how the solar wind is interacting with the magnetosphere and Mars. So we'll, we'll put that, that GIF in the show notes so that listeners can look at it because uh, it's, a, it's a good one to stare at for a little while. <laughs> Great, yes. So, you know, as we take what we learn from MAVEN and, and, and all the things it's taught us about the atmosphere, the magnetosphere, everything, how does this help us in terms of next steps? So if we think about the missions we want to fly next or the questions we want to answer next, um, you know, what, what, what has this shown us and, and which path is this putting us down in the future? Well, with MAVEN, what we're learning is that it's not, I've been talking a lot about the inputs coming from the sun, but one interesting thing for Mars is it depends on what's going on down below as well. Uh, for instance, last summer in 2018, there was a global dust storm on Mars, the planet encircling dust event. And Essentially, it was a dust storm that covered the entire planet. And this is really important because not only with MAVEN, we can measure the upper atmosphere, but there are other missions going on that measure the lower atmosphere or the rovers that are on the surface. And so Mars is a planet where you really want to understand the system from the surface all the way through the atmosphere and out into space. And this tells us that really what we can learn is that we want to understand what is provoking the atmosphere from below and what's provoking it from above. And so with MAVEN, what we're understanding is that, yes, we're characterizing the atmosphere right now and five years from the mission has been so great so far, but some of these cycles are longer than these five years. For instance, the solar cycle is essentially tracking 
a cycle of the sun going from a state of minimum activity to maximum activity. And what, what that means is that the solar events that we're alluding to, um, whether it's high stream particles coming off or coronal mass ejections, which are bundles of magnetic flux that are just pummeling through space, these events have a cycle of how often they occur. And the cycle is on average about 11 years. And with MAVEN, we want to understand different cycles that are going on at Mars. We want to understand the daily changes. We want to understand the changes over a Martian year for those seasonal changes. But we also want to understand the changes of the solar cycle as well. And so the more data we gather, the more we can understand the system and how all the different factors affecting it will play in here. And of course, um, we actually co collaborate with all of the other Mars, mission, Mars missions as often as we can. So with some of the rovers that are there, with the new rovers that are coming, um, you know, we try to really collaborate in order to get these multi-point measurements and a global understanding of the system. And that's really how you can learn science about the surface all the way out to space. Hmm. It's a 11 year solar cycle. I can't help but now just notice that the last dust storm was also 11 years ago. So with the, uh, with the dust storms, and of course this isn't my area of expertise, but something that I've learned as working with the MAVEN mission, there are certain parts of the Mars year that are prime for dust storms. And that's exactly when this global dust storm took place. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and then maybe just the, the, the one thing I'd really like to ask is, is like what we, we try to answer questions with these missions and often we end up finding out new questions more often than we solve uh, existing ones. So what's your big question, you know, five years into this mission now compared to then, what is the, the biggest burning question you have that like really keeps you up at night about, you know, the way this whole system works? Well, there, I think there are two answers to that. There's my burning question for my personal research, and then there's the burning question that we have for the mission. Uh, let's start with the, the mission question. And as I talked about the objectives before, we want to understand the current state of the upper atmosphere. We want to understand the current escape rate um, at the present epoch. But the third objective that we're going for is that total loss to space through time. And we're learning more and more about how to answer this question as we go, because obviously we can't just go back in time and measure what was going on at Mars 4 billion years ago. So this takes a lot of strategic planning and thinking about how we want to approach this question. Um, I was talking about solar events. Well, we believe that there was a lot more solar activity going on when the sun was younger, for instance. We also have been finding with MAVEN observations that when these solar events take place, there's an enhancement in the amount of atmosphere that's escaping to space. So we think, okay, if we're going back in time and there were more solar events going on, and these solar events are actually contributing to an enhancement in the atmosphere loss to space, then perhaps more of the atmosphere was being lost, you know, two, three billion years ago. And so it's really this, this total loss to space over time question that's very challenging because we're using models and we have to tweak all of these different knobs to really understand the question. And not only was the sun very different, but Mars was very different. We were talking about 
the Martian magnetic field and how we have crustal fields now. But at one point in time, we believe there was a global magnetic field, which means that through this 4 billion year history, you have to consider how strong was this, was this global magnetic field? Um, how long did it last for? When, when was it no longer being produced? And when there was the global magnetic field, did that actually protect the atmosphere from all of these solar events? And so you can see that there's this menagerie of questions that lead into it. So I'd say one of the one of the burning questions that we still have, and we are really working towards it with a lot of our data and model comparisons, is what is this total loss to space been through time? But if I transition to my burning question uh, for, for the physics of it, a lot of my research on the Martian magnetosphere has been looking at the magnetic tail. And we expect this tail to be very nicely organized because a lot of it is formed by the sun's magnetic field just interacting with the planet. And so you expect a nice organization um, and we have essentially what we call two lobes of the magnetic field. So you can just essentially imagine two different sections of, of this tail. What I found through my research was that this tail is actually not nicely organized. These sections are twisted um, instead of just being these nice sections that are going down away from the planet. And so we found that the magnetic tail of Mars has a twist to it. And we're not quite sure why that is. Um, this, this has been observed at Earth, for instance, but Earth has an intrinsic magnetic field, as we talked about before. So what I am actively looking at is trying to determine why this tail twist exists at Mars. Um, and part of the reason why I care is because most of the atmosphere that is being lost to space is exiting through the tail. So in order to truly understand how the atmosphere is being lost through the tail, I believe that we need to understand the magnetic tail structure and why it is that way. And so that's why I'm going after the twist of this tail. That's really fascinating. I, I can't wait to find out your progress on that over the next couple of years. That's really great. Well, uh, Gina, this has been an awesome conversation. I learned a, a ton of stuff that I didn't know before. So thank you for that. Um, I think we're all rooting now for Messenger. Let's see that. If I do the math right, two more three-year extended missions would give you a whole solar cycle, right? So that's kind of what we want to go for. For Maven, yeah, absolutely. And we we are um, able to last at least until 2030 right now. So we're trying to keep it going. That's awesome. Uh, is there anything you want to plug, anything you want to share with the listeners if they want to learn more, websites, uh, Twitter, I don't know, wherever you are on the internet? Absolutely. Yeah. So I actually more recently started an Instagram account where I share a little bit about what it's like to be a woman in science um, working at NASA. And so this Instagram account is at Dr. Gina DiBraccio. So it's just my name. Um, easy to find, but I'm, I'm using this as a way to show, you know, I do science, I'm very passionate about it, but I also have other activities in life that I'm passionate about too, such as fitness and spending time with my family. And so this is a way to kind of demonstrate what it's like to work at NASA, but also to have that work-life balance as well. It's almost like scientists are people too. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we have lives outside of the science, although we love our science. Well, thanks again, Gina. This is, this is really great. And I'm sure the listeners are going to love it. Thank you so much. That's it for this week, Martians. Thanks to Gina for connecting us with this awesome mission. 
We hope Maven has a long life ahead of it and wish the best of luck to the team on its mission extension proposal. If you've got questions or thoughts on the episode, I'd love to hear them. Feel free to email me at info at wemartians.com or reach us at Twitter at we underscore Martians. If you think this show deserves more support, consider supporting us on Patreon. It's as cheap as a buck a month and you get tons of bonus content too. For this episode, I chatted with Gina for about 10 minutes about her work on other planets, like Mercury's messenger mission and some of the data in the outer planets of Jupiter, Saturn, and the ice giants, Uranus and Neptune. I learned a little bit about how all of these planets are more alike than you think, at least when you're looking at it from an, a physics point of view. If you want to hear it, check it out at patreon.com slash wemartians or in the show notes. And if that's not your thing, let us know how you feel on Apple Podcasts with a rating and a review. Huge thanks to TC Green from the USA for your five-star review, even if you think I'm a suspicious Canadian. All right, see you next time and add Aries Martians. Thank you.